Welcome back to Dumb Nerd Thing. I'm your host, Teddy. And today I've got my buddy Derek on to talk about U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, guy's got some wild stories about him and is an interesting, controversial figure. Uh, so it's interesting to, you know, why, what draws somebody to read and research about uh, a character like that. Um, and also, uh, if you don't know, we're on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Dumb Nerd Thing. We stream a couple days of the week. We have D&D, we have Star Wars, we have uh, Anime Tuesdays. We stream an anime game, you know, every uh, every so often. We're, we're, we're streaming pretty regularly over there, so go check that out. Before you check that out, check this episode out. Uh, Derek, you're here today. Uh, you've gathered here in this Discord to talk about history all of human history you want you said that you wanted to go through and explain all of human history and uh, uh give an objective truth to all of history is that is that correct you know that is absolutely right tim there is obviously one single objective truth for all of history there is yep. uh no possible differing uh opinions or conclusions by experts on historical events there's just you know it's just all you know it's all super linear. You know, it's all been figured out. There's no history. It's done. We're good. You know, yeah. um, <laughs> um, but no, 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 no seriousness. Um, so I, I know when we started, uh, you, you, um, you approached me for this. It was kind of like, uh, I know it's kind of broad. Like history is, like you said, it's a very um, esoteric subject matter, uh, even on the best of days. So I'm, I'm, what I'd like to narrow down at the very least is something that I'm actually uh, in the process of learning more about right now. Um, something of particular interest to me is the uh you know kind of the life of uh former president lyndon b johnson mm-hmm. uh, lyndon baines johnson um who was um you you may recall from history class was the uh was the president from uh, 1963 to 1968 and oversaw um landmark events in american uh political history like uh the civil like the passage of the civil rights act in 1964 um as well as uh, the uh, Vietnam, as well as the majority of the mm-hmm. Vietnam War. Um, so to say that he's an interesting figure is, uh, well, I, I like to think is an understatement. Yeah, um, and let me ask you this. Uh, when you first said that you wanted to do history as a topic and then you know narrow it down to um, what you're reading about right now in Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, is this something that you know you check out often? Are you a big history guy? Do you check out other you know eras or figures mm-hmm. or uh, like wh- where does your history nerddom exist? Um, I would have to say uh, definitely a bias towards um, contemporary um, Euro- European and American history, um, mm-hmm. but I mean that's that don't think that's particularly common at least uncommon. Um, I've been, I've been doing my best to branch out more and more, um, to, you know, non, uh, Euro, Euro American histories, like with regards to, uh, modern Mexican history, like I shouldn't say modern Mexican history, but definitely an interest in the, um, the Mexican revolution and the Porfiriado regime, mm. or with regards to, um, things like the, going through the history of China. I remember being mm. very engrossed with learning, uh, kind of at least at the surface level, I'm not going to claim to be an expert in any of these things. I'm not a historian or um anything by trade so uh whatever you hear today please god take it a grain of salt and 
<laughs> to do like sightings. If, if anything in, in here piques your interest, please, by all means, I encourage you to go and read um, primary and secondary sources that have been written by um, actual people that know what the hell they're talking about. I'm just, mm -hmm. you know, more of an enthusiast. Yeah, we have um, we have nerds on the show. We don't have experts. <laughs> okay, perfect. Perfect. So, yeah, please, yeah. It because um, it is kind of like there's always going to be stuff that's like I'm sure I I, I would, no doubt we'll get minor details wrong um, with regards to this because it's all part of a learning process and it's not really something that you do as an academic or even for a job, thankfully. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just kind of like is that kind of general disclaimer. Anyways. Um, kind of all over the place, but mostly with regards to um, kind of contemporary history past uh, 1500 or so. Gotcha. Cool. Um, hold on. Hold on. I had, a, I had a thing. I had a question. Or... Oh, there it was. Another previous episode of Dumb Nerd Thing, uh, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about a lot here, is I did one on the Elder Scrolls lore. The uh, Okay. The video game series elder scrolls oblivion skyrim and all that i had my my mm -hmm. brother on and he wanted to talk about that and he's he's also a big history buff he likes a lot of medieval history and um all that and he mm -hmm. reads he, he reads a lot of history books in his spare time and what he found so interesting about the elder scrolls lore is that uh it offers a lot of alternative takes on the same events in the history books in the mm -hmm. in the series and so you would have you know same accounts of uh different accounts of the same event from different perspectives um mm -hmm. and so i wanted to bring up that aspect of history and how uh like it's not just it doesn't seem to be just like learning what happened it's also piecing mm -hmm. together and and keeping that subjective perspective in view it's funny you mentioned that too, because you're hundred percent right. I mean, even amongst the people that were um, there and were the same actors, there's a certain fluidity when it comes to how events are perceived throughout history. Um, like uh, take, for example, um, old timey views on colonialism, for instance, like you, you take uh, the British view of history from the year 1900, versus the year 2020 I, I there's going to be a definitely a different uh viewpoint and things that they're going to focus on uh between groups of what were at the time uh were very respected historians versus what are, today are considered you know bleeding experts on uh, a particular field mm. um so and as more things come you know as more uh research is done more evidence is found for certain topics and different perspectives are you know gain importance with regards to the research um like difference is most recently is with regards to uh women's history or with regards to the history of uh, uh lgbtq plus people in history it's not something that would have been a any any kind of focus for anyone in the early 1900s but it's definitely um because of the change just because of uh, a different prioritization in that focus today you're going to see more and more of the studies start to kind of come out compared to then, which, you know, it, good luck finding any, any kind mm. of source on that regard. Mm. Um, so it's, it's fascinating with regards to what is considered to be a set story. You'd be surprised with regards to how much can actually change over time, given new evidence and new, you know, viewpoints you look through, you look mm. things through. Yeah. I mean, even if you just look at the, uh, something like, 
the JFK assassination, you know, mm-hmm. where, where we have video evidence of what exactly happened, you know, and you have the um, on the ground testimonies of people that were there at the time, you know, none mm-hmm. of it, you know, it, it, none of it 100% lines up. You know, not, I'm not talking a conspiracy. Yeah. Although that's another dumb nerd thing I was well, I mean, even but, among the conspiracy theorists, I mean, there's um, there's differing viewpoints on how exactly <laughs> what exactly the conspiracy was. I mean, was it the Soviets? Was it the mob? Right. You know, it's 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 many other things. Uh, so, speaking of U.S. presidents, Lyndon mm-hmm. Baines Johnson, uh, how did you get on uh, wanting to learn about him? As it was kind of funny with regards to um, you, kind of pick up things over of. You know, it's like you read random articles sometimes um, or random Reddit threads. So this one in particular was like, a, the, and I, I don't know if you've, have you ever heard of the subreddit Ask Historians? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I will show that subreddit all day. I mean, I, I love that. Um, there was um, kind of a, there was kind of like a, a question that came up with regards to how do you, um, I, I guess, um, balance the fact that Lyndon Johnson was the guy that uh, passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And this is also the same guy that was a guy from Texas uh, in the 1960s, very Southern guy, and dropped the N-bomb like you would not believe. Mm-hmm. Like, this was not a very PC guy mm-hmm. at all. So it's kind of, well, or how, did, how did this guy go to, you know, from Deep South kind of, you know, Texas grew up in rural Texas to becoming president and having, you know, being able to be the guy that actually passes them. And that was a question that was like kind of be puzzled. It's like, well, yeah, good question. How did that happen? Um, and so I kind of dug around and I was kind of looking around. Okay. Well, what's a good book on Lyndon Johnson? I can read. Um, I'm not really much of a, I've never really been much of a reader. I have to kind of force myself to actually pay attention yeah. to books. That's why I've been really getting into audiobooks lately because something I can listen to in my car or I can yeah. just kind of lounge around in my headset. Um, stumbled across, you know, it's like, you know, with regards to Robert Caro's books, you know, it's like very critically acclaimed, you know, kind of everything I've heard about them were, you know, it's like, yeah, you know what, these are books, these are good books. You want to read these if you want to learn about Lyndon Johnson. So it's like, okay, fine. What can I do to um, Master of the Senate was kind of the, if I recall correctly, it was the third books in the series. Um, and happened to be free on, you know, like a little local library app that I use for an audiobook. Cool. All right. Cause mm-hmm. it's like $90 on Amazon. Otherwise I'm not paying that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's like you start to listen and it's, uh, you, it's, it's not often you get a good story about this sort of thing. And this is a guy, this is a very flawed and deeply, interesting if complicated man mm-hmm. um this is a guy that grew up in rural uh johnson city texas um in texas hill country there was no electric there was no electricity plumbing was a very rare commodity his pan- his family was dirt poor and the guy is um someone that was very interested in kind of as a result of his upbringing, very interested in helping the poor um, and did have a vested interest in uh, helping the um, Spanish-speaking Mexican minority uh, in Texas at the time. Hmm. Um, He worked as a school teacher 
um, in rural Texas. Um, and, you know, taught, you know, taught uh, Spanish speaking Mexican students, um, very was very interested in the well being of his students and was um, the kind of person that did have a vest did have a very vested interest in helping people. Um, now, you compare this with the uh, Lyndon Johnson that kind of everyone kind of more more moreover know mostly knows um, and kind of goes through politics and becomes this very ruthlessly pragmatic uh, politician, like very. Mm -hmm. God, how, do you, how do you explain this one? So um, Texas in the early 20th century was kind of dominated by a lot of very uh, powerful interest, entrenched political interests um, that were very at a very kind of stranglehold over Texas politics, state politics in particular it was not clean elections were kind of a bad joke. Uh, with regards to getting anywhere in office there. And Johnson was the kind of guy that was not above playing by very, very dirty political rules. I mean, we're talking ballot stuffing, we're talking bribing people to vote, um, getting in connection, getting connections with uh, political bosses at the time and knowing really who to work and wor work over and work with in order to get his way. Um, not, for the, not, not a boy scout, but at the end of the day was still willing to be able to bring to the Texas Hill country, his home, his home, uh, region, um, electrification, um, increased funding, uh, for social programs and was a guy that was willing to do what it took to get things done. Like handing people suitcases of money. Uh, to give to other people uh, that required suitcases of money in order to get their political support. Gotcha. Okay. Like crazy illegal stuff that um, was only ever really found out about in retrospect, mm -hmm. um, but was part of the part of the reason why he was able to really get as far as he was because he knew how to read people and what people's price were, mm -hmm. and was very good at being able to pay that price plus the way uh, the only way to gain that power and climb that ladder coming from a poor background yeah um there is that element of it too now it's not to say that johnson didn't have a um wasn't talented as a politician he didn't just bribe his way into office obviously there's more to it than that sure the guy was um definitely just a very passionate and profound speaker um he was a big guy I mean, the guy the dude was uh built like a linebacker and what it could really project this presence of yeah i'm in control i know what i'm doing follow me and we're gonna go far daddy energy kind of, kind of yeah exactly you know honestly kind of yeah it is okay. almost like very um big daddy kind of energy mm -hmm. and it's funny you mention that too with regards to the daddy comment because he loved to play that angle um, <laughs> with specifically older men. Oh, um, I didn't yeah. know he, he played that game. <laughs> well, just imagine, you know, like in a very charming southern, you know, Texas hill country twang, mm. where he's like, you know, you know, uh, uh, like, uh, <laughs> 
the big power, the power bosses and political brokers and jefes of the, you know, the text, you know, the Texas political landscape, he had a talent for finding mm. older men and getting in their good graces and um, really treat it would go on record and say, well, you know, uh, you know, you know, Sam Rayburn, you know, he is, he's like, a, you know, he's like a daddy to me. Um, mm. It was the, uh, very powerful congressional uh, leader in the House of Representatives uh, during the mid 20th century, or like with regards to folks like uh, Dick Russell, who was a Georgia senator that for a very long time effectively ran the U.S. Senate. You know, he was mm -hmm. the kind of guy that was able to cozy up to him. Um, and he had a lot of daddies, <laughs> is my point. <laughs> he had a lot of daddies. <laughs> Now, the, um, only, the only thing I really knew about the main thing you when when somebody says Lyndon B. Johnson to me, the first thing that I think of are those recordings of his phone calls where he talks about how he likes his pants to give a lot of room for his balls and how he would often flash people on the Senate floor with, uh, his, with his Johnson. Uh, he, he interviewed people while he was taking a shit. <laughs> like you inter he interviewed secretaries. Uh, while he was taking a dump and he's just kind of like, that was, that was just the person he was. And he wanted to know, can you hack it working for me? I want to know that I can sit down the shitter and, you know, <laughs> give dictation and you can do that without being, you know, freaked out by me. <laughs> um, it's a strong tactic. I gotta admit. Oh God. I, I mean, this is the same guy too, that would be while he was in the house of representatives, be walking along and <laughs> you would just be like, I right, hold it. He's talking with a couple of people. I was like, ah, hold on. I got to take a piss. And he's in the middle of the parking lot. <laughs> he just whips out his dick and starts pissing in the parking lot. And everyone else is like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's just it's like um, – it's questionable. But sometimes he would deliberately use it as a power move. But other times, too, it is just kind of like he was, like, born in a barn. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just what he was. That's just what it, – it's not like – again, you're not really coming from a background of indoor plumbing or anything. This is what you did. Mm. Um, so, okay, so he rises through the ranks and he makes it all the way to VP of Kennedy and then mm -hmm. uh, becomes president and then gets reelected. So, yeah, uh, if we let's get to that, uh, that question from the beginning about the how did he get to this point where he passes the uh, Civil Rights Act? So the thing to remember and this is a key point, is that at the end of the day, he is a Southerner in the Jim Crow era mm -hmm. with all the baggage that entails. He is not exactly, before 1964, was not exactly known for his civil rights record and was on record you, that for voting against civil rights measures time and time again with his Southern constituents. Um, this was not a man that really prioritized civil rights during his initial tenure of office. Um, the thing is, though, is that, again, you have to, you're starting from a no-name senator. And in a world, that, in a, a, a chamber of government, the Senate, that absolutely values seniority. Like, I mean, they, I mean, it, you talk about you know Congress being a gerontocracy today. I mean, it's it's an old joke, honestly. Mm. Even back in the the 40s and 50s, I mean, it is kind of it's dominated by very old men, very powerful men, and very um, people that have been in office for 
a long time, decades. I mean, it's, it's said that uh, during the first uh, two or three years of being in the Senate, you don't talk at all. It's mm. verboten. Like you, you just don't, you know, you, you, maybe you vote, you raise your hand, be sure as shit don't talk. And on top of that too, a lot of the entrenched interests at the time, um, the, the very senior senators, this was something that was definitely very heavily favored by Southern conservative senators. Um, that these were the people that uh, led all of the uh, committee appointments. These guys were the ones that really made, they could make or break your political career. Um, you step out of line. Um, what Johnson really had to do first was get them on his side. And what his talent was, was finding the right people. Find, you know, it was like finding the right daddy, you know, that knew, you know, the knew where all the bodies were buried and it could be tried and we can, can count it on to help whip the other senators into, uh, finding, uh, you know, voting with you. And that at the time happened to be a man by the name of Dick Russell. And Dick Russell was a Georgia Senator, Jim Crow as they come, you know, very, but it was a very quintessential, picaresque Southern gentleman, good and bad included. Hmm. Um, so what Johnson, Johnson's talent, of course, was getting into, and you know, getting under Dick Russell's, uh, getting under being able to really kind of convince him that, you know what, yeah, you're like a son to me. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, it was to the point where um, Russell eventually, who was, Russell was the Senate Majority Leader, who eventually, were not necessarily, he was not, the, excuse me, scratch that, he was not the Senate Majority Leader. He was a very, he was one of the most powerful men in the Senate at the time because of how widely respected he was amongst the Southern Bloc. What he voted on, the South voted on. The South wasn't necessarily a majority of, you know, the, the senators in the U.S., but they were a cohesive, coherent bloc that were pretty reliable with regards to the way they voted. So Dick Russell votes one way, South's going to vote that way. Mm. So that's a big chunk of fucking vote. That's a big, that's a big chunk right there. So over time, um, Dick Russell is getting old. Um, he sees Johnson as a potential replacement to lead the Southern bloc. Um, and eventually wants to see Johnson become president because uh, – if you know your if you know your American history, um, ever since the Civil War, there were maybe one or two Southern candidates, Southern-ish candidates, I should say, that ran for um, ran, ran for and won political office. So the big example off the top of my head would be um, Woodrow Wilson. Um, but even then, he wasn't exactly what you would call reeks of magnolia Southern. Mm. Um, so Dick Russell's big, you know, big idea here was that you want to have a Southerner in office. You want to have our guy leading the charge against, you know, you know, more liberal bomb throwers, quote unquote, that were pressing the civil rights issue. Because um, you got to remember this, the, um, the, the, the Southerners, they were Democrats. They were what you would call Dixiecrats back in the day. Um, and you had like this broad coalition between more Northern liberal Democrats that, you know, would push for civil rights reform and all that fun stuff. And then you have um, the Southern Democrats that were very conservative and were in support of Jim Crow, states' rights, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So he wants to see, a, he wants to see uh, Johnson as president and be a Southern president. So how do you do that? Well, you got to 
shore up his civil rights bona fides in effect. So Dick Russell, this most powerful man in the Senate next to Johnson himself, maybe, um, had, you know, it's like goes and says, okay, look, we want to get Johnson in office. I can't run for office. I tried. I lost bad. And the reason why is because people see me as a Southerner through and through. The Northern, Northern liberals are not going to vote for me. The Westerners are not going to vote for me. They can vote for Johnson, though, so long as we can get him to be less Southern, more broad appeal, kind of mainstream politician. So how do you do that? Well, you got to show that he has some kind of civil rights record. Until 1957, it doesn't exactly exist. Uh, Johnson was most famous for being a Senate majority leader. Um, He was famous for running a couple of committees that he were that he ran a he ran a few commissions that he kind of blew up in terms of importance but really didn't amount to all that much um unless you consider you know just being a media you know really hogging the spotlight during the korean war about a bunch of different just like being all smoke and kind of like really all smoke and mirrors to the public for the most part um so but then it kind of runs contrary so how do you how do you do that while also sticking to Southern Jim Crow values? And so a yeah, lot of happening a, was in 50. It is, it is. So 57, it, it, um, you're familiar, is a big landmark year in general because that is the same year the Voting Rights Act was passed. Um, it didn't initially start off as the Voting Rights Act. It started as a Civil Rights Act in 1957, um, which was kind of imagine a, a beta version of the civil rights act of 64 um in you know de- school st- school desegregation measures um mm-hmm. you know equal treatment of uh, african americans and people and minorities um the whole disassembly of the jim crow simple i mean just like the whole nine yards no way in hell this was getting passed at all not in 1957 and not by a southern democrat controlled senate but again, though, you want to, but there's mounting pressure to get something passed because at this time, this is when uh, the civil the civil rights movement was really kind of kicking into gear. Um, you had the Montgomery, but you had the Montgomery bus boycotts, were, which were going on. You had uh, Martin Luther King rising to prominence during this time period. Um, there's definitely pressure to try and relieve some of the um, continuous pressure that the Southern Coalition is under um, to get something done. Uh, at the same time, too, you want to make sure that it's something that, you know, is able to kind of stop the um, leeching of the Republican Party of Black voters away from the Democratic Party. Because like I mentioned before, the Democratic Party at the time was very big tent. So you had, so a lot of, um, uh, black and African-American voters uh, would go towards um, the Democrat, would kind of like more New Deal Democrats, you know, people that would have followed under FDR and Harry Truman, um, social social programs, welfare programs, all that fun stuff that were, it was meant to raise Americans out of poverty. Um, and at the time too, um, the very, you know, impoverished um, communities for the people of color, um, you know, there was significant reason to want to vote Democrat in that regard. And that being said though, um, it kind of turns into, well, what have you done for me lately in the 50s kind of deal? Because the, at this time, this one, um, much more in the media, um, 
the you know Southern Democrats who were in support uh, were very um, silent, if in a best case scenario on civil rights, especially um, the Emmett Till murderer um, and the Montgomery bus boycotts were still very, very fresh in memory. And they're getting out of the South. They're, uh, you know, in more urban, uh, more urban areas in the North, which the Republican Party at the time was able to kind of start scooping up because, hey, uh, at least we're not the Jim Crow Democrats. Mm -hmm. So there, there was there, there was reason to want to get this passed on the side of you know the, the Southern Bloc to try and just stop, stop them from getting out of their thumb and vote for the other guy. Um, part of that too was that uh, so they're able to kind of eventually get through a they struck out most of the provisions of the Civil Rights Act of '57, but the one that Johnson the one provision that Johnson pushed for. Um, a lot was this uh the voting rights provision and the reason he pushed for that was because he recognized that none of the other stuff really mattered all that much in comparison to giving um those oppressed people the right to a fair vote because if you can vote you can have you can vote in whoever you want in the office people mm -hmm. that are going to actually care about what you think and say you can vote for sheriffs. You can vote for judges. You can vote for local leaders. You can vote. I mean, so wait, let me start. Let me stop you right there. Yeah. So to clarify, I think what you said pre just just now about you know the other things kind of fall by the wayside in terms of importance in comparison to the the voting rights. That's because if you give uh, these people the right to vote, then all of this other stuff will be far more achievable. Uh, through their their newfound political power. That's the idea. Okay. It was pragmatism that was kind of the name of the game because, mm -hmm. again, you're you're fighting in an ideal world. This wouldn't have even been an issue. I mean, I, this wouldn't even be a vote in the first place because you never you wouldn't have reason to. But that's not the world that Johnson lived in. Right. And that was not the kind of people he had to work with. Um, they'd oppose anything approaching equality. I, I mean, anything at all. This was not a type of people. Th these were not people that really believed in equality amongst um, amongst um, people of different races and religions, colors, creeds, whatever. Um, this was what he had to work with. So conv he convinces the um, Southern Bloc at the time that look, this is a de this is going to be defanged. No one's going to care about this Voting Rights Act, anyways. It's going to be something that can be relatively um, easily countered by local legislation, whatever. And that's kind of how he gets them because he kind of downplays the importance of them. Now, to the other side too, he's got to work with the more uh, liberal New Deal Democrats at the time uh, that were like, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't, you don't understand. You know, yeah, yeah, okay. Having those equal provisions and protections, yeah, that'd be great, but that's not going to get passed. What will get passed is this Voting Rights Act because of the fact that um, once you give them that ability to vote in, uh, to be able to vote in a fair election, then they can go and vote for all the other things. Right. And they can vote for whatever they want, which they don't have the power to do. They don't have that protection. 
So that that's what gave him the more general popularity in order to be uh, elected. Put his name on the map. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, for obvious reasons, it didn't didn't exactly do, win him much favor amongst liberals at the time. Because let's be real, you voted for one watered down Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Yippee, kind of deal. Um, the NAACP at the time was very critical of it. Uh, because of just how limited in scope it was. Um, it was still, pe- people recognized the name Johnson, but it wasn't exactly something that were, was people, people that were very astute and followed his voting record. They did not see him as someone that was particularly interested in the idea of civil rights. So, um, But it did was, put his name on the map. Was the Civil Rights Act what, helped him i'm i don't remember uh the exact timeline of it all but was that one of the selling points on him getting elected for his second term there was the um it was one of those elements um it was that popularity of him just being the incumbent after the kennedy assassination um it was his own political maneuvering that really kind of helped ensure that he was able to get that election in the first place. Um, to say that this, it, was, it wasn't exactly just the civil rights. Well, right. No, I don't mean, I don't mean yeah. the rights act is what made him win. I, I mean, I meant mm-hmm. more that that was the reason for him supporting that and getting that passed was to gain more popularity in the general public. What was pushing it for him was part of that reason because it, it wound up kind of, there's kind of multiple reasons for it. Yeah, it's pragmatic. It helps him build up his civil rights bona fides with the general public. At the same time, too, it's not that he didn't want to help people. This was a man that, if he wanted to, there were other avenues to try and build his own popularity. Um, if he were so inclined to do so. But this was the battle that he fought to um, really want to make a difference for the people that the people that did not have power and really did not have a proportional voice in American politics at the time. So was there a change in him over time into being more open to these to, to civil rights or had that kind of just not been on his radar it was more in the sense that there was never an opportune moment to actually um work through and pass something civil rights related that cold cold pragmatism correct gotcha it's not that civil rights acts haven't been tried it's not like people didn't try to pass civil rights acts before um they it was tried in the 1930s it was tried mm-hmm. in the 1940s and it was tried in the 1950s by people that genuinely did care about civil rights, by uh, progressive leaders of the time that saw the injustice for what it was and wanted to correct it. The trouble was is that they just either didn't have the power or they didn't have the political expertise to make it possible. Johnson had both. And he knew when the time was correct to strike and he knew how to strike. And that's how he was able to really be able to get it passed where so many efforts before had failed. 
So where was uh, this like pinpoint accurate pragmatism and um, getting things done correctly uh, when it came to the escalation of the Vietnam War? Well, unfortunately, uh, that is kind of the dark side to Lyndon Johnson. Um, he's a very stubborn kind of individual. Um, I won't defend it, but at the very least, it's more understandable when you put it in the context of the era. Because um, Vietnam itself was a tragedy. It's not something that really should have ever happened. Nowhere near to the degree it did. I'll get that out of the way. Um, when you're president, you're relying on experts and on people to trust in order to give you the correct information on how to proceed. Uh, Johnson at the time was much more of a guy that was obsessed with not losing. He's not the kind of guy to take losing gracefully. He's very like, you, you know, those people um, that are kind of like obsessed with winning an argument, no matter what, like, it doesn't matter yeah. if they're wrong. It's just kind of like, they, they just gotta be right. They gotta be right. Yeah. Johnson's one of those people. Um, <laughs> to give you context is kind of get a guy's personality. Um, so he surrounds himself with what are at the time, the best experts. And a lot of these guys are very hawkish cold war era um defense you know uh defense advisors um people that were very engrossed in the domino theory and uh containing the spread of communism you know the whole you know the whole red scare paranoia shtick that was enveloping uh u.s politics at that at that time um and it's kind of where he took his advice from and was of the opinion that um, at least foreign policy wise was something that you felt he felt that was something that should have had greater involvement in um, to ensure that it's not something that the US in effect loses. It was something that was thought to be winnable at the time. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have 2020 vision, you don't quite like they knew it was going to be a mess, but they didn't quite understand how bad of a mess I don't think at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really realize until they were left holding the bag and it was too late. But again, you're already ankle deep in this mess and you're the kind of guy that doesn't like to lose. Uh, there's a reason why sunk cost fallacy is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I'm thinking about uh, talking about Mr. Johnson here is um, a lot of time, especially today, history and historical figures and facts are boiled down to a uh, pretty, pretty black and white, um, you know, good, good guys, bad guys and good actions and bad actions. And uh, it's, it seems to me like usually it's, it's, you know, Lyndon Johnson was like like people will refer to him with a single sentence or or tweet, you know, um, 
regarding his presidency and his place in history um when if you actually take a look at it there it's you know it's a very multi-leveled layered presidency and actions and uh, him as a person that none of which either should should you either take as exonerating him or condemning him uh like that's a kind of a, a fruitless venture um more so i think i think it's just the best way to to actually learn the lessons of the of that time and of those uh events and in order to um take those lessons into the present i think you're definitely on the money with regards to there's no one single viewpoint and a strict black and white morality is um you want to be careful with playing around with that mindset um i, I will even preface i mean what i'm talking about today i mean this is just my own takeaway from it. Mm -hmm. um this is from my own life experiences this is from my own sense of ethics and morality um what i value what i consider to be interesting this is my take on it now someone you might go you might read the exact same source material and you'll come away with a completely different mindset that that's kind of the beauty of when you look back on history there is just that subjectivity because what you value and what you will consider to be the most important part of a person's personality or what you will you know consider to be you know a, a good rationale behind something is going to really depend on the way you look at things mm -hmm. um so what i talk about today at the end of the day is from what i've learned and what you know researchers and historians will talk about in their books will be what they have come to understand about people and even the people themselves that were there living at the time they are biased by their own mm -hmm. uh values and their own perception and what information they have to deal with mm. I'm so sure... it's an imperfect view of an imperfect view of an yeah. imperfect view I'm sure if that you read sense. a book written by, you know, those people that were advising him on the on the Vietnam War, they would paint the picture more so as his responsibility. You know, it's uh, wholly dependent on what kind of message you want to follow. Right. And there's that there's that like attempt to uh, often to create a story out of history and create a narrative you know, out of these people and events um, where sometimes, you know, life doesn't exactly work that way and history doesn't work that way necessarily. Well, what's the quote that's attributed to Napoleon? Uh, what is history but a myth agreed upon? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, uh, so uh, what would you like people to, to main, have as like the main takeaway if they don't ever listen or watch it or read anything else about Lyndon B. Johnson. Take away. My takeaway is that one, uh, the guy's absolutely fucking hilarious to learn about with regards to the way he talks about his dick and <laughs> shitting and pissing in public and dropping N bombs and swearing. And just oh like, to, to just like yelling at people, like get that fucking Senator over here. I mean, it's Jesus. like, he's something else. Um, <laughs> Um, but also, it, it, it also on a more serious note that um, 
at the end of the day, these are people. They had their own um, flaws and high points and low points, um, character attributes and perspectives on life that um, agree with, disagree with. They live, they breathed, and they had an impact on the world. And at the very least, the more we understand how these people lived and thought, the better we can um, increase our own understanding of what people actually think today, um, how that can resonate with the way history is made right now at this moment. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, the, the, I, I also did another episode with some people on, uh, the classics, um, you know, like, uh, mm-hmm. the Odyssey and, and such. And they, they s- talked similarly about how these old stories, um, you know, uh, have a lot of things that resonate and echo through to today. And like, we can learn a lot about today and who we are through these old stories. So, um, it's interesting how much you can find a little bits and pieces of that sentiment, uh, in different nerdy things. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you recommend for people, uh, if they are interested in, in learning more about Lyndon, Lyndon B. Well, um, I would have to recommend a couple of books. Um, Obviously, as I've mentioned, um, it would be uh, The Master of the Senate and The Passage of Power by Robert A. Caro. Um, I mean, if you want to buy, I mean, if you got a hundred bucks to drop on those books, (laughs) by all means. But uh, personally, I think a more economical route is if you have an Audible subscription, they do have um, audiobook offerings cheaper in my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I do know for a fact that um, if you have the Libby app, which is um, the, an app, which is a, 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 an ebook app run by the Digital Library of Illinois, um, they do have a free copy on there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to try and reserve that. Um, another book that I a, would also... You can use promo code Lyndon B. Johnson's Thick Sweaty Balls for 20% off an Audible subscription, actually. Thanks, Audible, for the... Really? I, I didn't know that. I, I, did, I, yeah. I, I, I remember um, when I got into Audible, I used the word jumbo because that was <laughs> what he would call his dick. He named it jumbo. <laughs> and it was like when he was in college, he would go and he would like uh, talk to his roommates. He'd whip his dick out. I'd be like, jumbo, did you have a good night tonight? <laughs> after, he, after he hooked up with someone. <laughs> oh, my God. Jesus, yeah. Um, <laughs> and another book I would recommend, uh, my, my girlfriend bought for me for Christmas and I love her for it um is the taking charge it's a book taking charge by uh michael r uh Beschless, um who is uh um it, it was an audiobook format and kind of talks more about his uh uh after him taking over the office after the kennedy assassination um and kind of delves a little bit into the uh early vietnam war mm-hmm. um and it's mostly centered around it's interesting because it's mostly centered around um his at like audio tape recordings um that were discovered after his presidency of mm. uh, conversations he had interesting um that's cool cool uh well i think um i've at least come out of this knowing a bit more about lbj and i think my biggest my biggest personal takeaway is finding out about the crazy daddy energy that he carried um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i think uh man cool Remember, uh, remember, kids, if you want to get anywhere in life, find an old man and tell him that you're like a 
you're like a daddy to me. You know, make sure to really lay on the charm in that regard. Yeah, go up to your boss. Go up to your boss at work on uh, next work day and mm -hmm. uh, knock on their door and just lean in and with your best Southern Dixie accent say, you know, you're like a daddy to me. And you'll get that promotion.